Hi guys, and welcome to Barbarossa, Apocalypse in the East. I'm Harry, and I'm your host. Today we're covering Operation Barbarossa from November 15th to the 29th. I'd like to copiously apologize for the ridiculous lightness. I have a bit of a, a crisis of motivation at the same time as I had midterms. I sincerely apologize for that. And my goal for ongoing episodes and for my next podcast is to keep up a consistent upload schedule. In other news, I've decided to do this episode as a regular two-week episode, and we'll finish Barbarossa next time with an episode that combines the last week of the campaign with some analysis. So let's get into it. Last episode, German forces in Army Group Center were largely halted, while forces in Army Groups North and South saw more success, although both of them were at the end of their rope by the end of the episode. German generals planned for Army Group Center to conduct strikes on the northern and southern flank to encircle Moscow and its surrounding area in one last operation. After a two-week reprieve beginning in late October, the German offensive restarted on the 15th of November. Operations had already been underway in the south, but the 9th Army up in the north could initially only deploy the 27th Army Corps on the attack. Initial reports seemed good, with Soviet troops offering little resistance. In all likelihood, however, this was more of a case of Soviet troops withdrawing to more defensible positions to avoid encirclement rather than being a sign of collapse. Uh, This fact was evidenced by strong Soviet defenses elsewhere, and on the whole, the first day was a rather lackluster affair for the Germans. German commanders were beginning to lose their nerve. On the 16th of November, von Klug reported to Bach that Hoppner's panthers would not attack until the 18th. The two went back and forth, with von Klug wavering and then recurring to his original stance, but the time lost in this debate meant that the attack would not begin in full until November 19th. A major part of this apprehension was the need to beat back Soviet counterattacks, and really a fear of what these counterattacks represented. German commanders assumed that if the Soviets were conducting such frequent counterattacks, they must still have huge reserves of men and material. In truth, despite having large reserves, much larger than the Germans had anyway, the Red Army really couldn't afford these counterattacks, which generally proved costly and ineffective at this point. And the losses the Red Army sustained here left them vulnerable to German attacks, but those same attacks dissuade the Germans from themselves attacking. So in that sense, they kind of neutralized each other. Still, German attacks gradually pushed Soviet troops back in the northern sector. Rokossovsky, who commanded the 16th Army, requested permission from the Stavka to withdraw to the Istra River on the 19th, the Istra being the last natural defense in front of Moscow. His request was refused, and Zhukov ordered Rokossovsky to hold his front without retreating one step. However, Rokossovsky's concerns about his defense proved correct, and Hopner's Panzer Group managed to achieve a breakthrough late on November 20th. In the southern sector of Army Group Center, Guderian's 2nd Panzer Group was even worse off. They had been given no time to rest and were weaker than their peers in the north. Local attacks on the 16th were successful, but Guderian's forces were still 125 kilometers from their immediate objective. Fuel supplies were a quarter of what was necessary, and the entire 2nd Panzer Army could only boast about 150 operable tanks from a starting number of over 1,000. From the 16th to the 20th, Guderian's forces ground their way north against bitter cold, fuel shortages, and fierce Soviet resistance. Guderian's letter to his wife on the 21st strongly suggested that he no longer believed that he could achieve his goals. 
A local success on the 22nd led him to flip, and he became optimistic that his forces could succeed in taking a major rail line about 100 kilometers away. However, on the 24th, Guderian seems to have changed his mind again and tried to cancel the attack he himself had proposed. Returning to the northern sector, the breakthrough of November 20th allowed for a greater advance, but this was still a grueling process. The 56th Panzer Corps seized the city of Klin, 85 kilometers northwest of Moscow, on the 23rd, but they did so at a crippling cost. The 56th had began the offensive on November 15th with 220 tanks, and by November 25th, the Corps numbered around 60 operable tanks. On November 23rd, Halder laid out his expectations for continued operations. Army Group North was to link up with the Finns at Lake Ladiga and cut off Landgrad. Army Group Center would encircle Moscow and secure the surrounding regions, and Army Group South would seize the Caucasian city of Mykop. At nearly the same time, a frontline German officer described the war much more accurately. I quote here, There are two possibilities. Either the war will be very long, or we will lose it before that. Despite the dire strategic situation, German forces were finally seeing some real operational success. By the 26th of November, Panzer Group III had achieved a real breakthrough and was advancing rapidly, moving towards the Moscow Canal, the Moscow Canal making up a significant obstacle to the encirclement of the city from the north. By the 27th, German forces were just three kilometers from the canal, and they created a bridgehead over the canal at Yakroma on the 28th. Reinhardt, whose forces actually created the bridgehead, were eager to continue eastward and create a larger encirclement, but von Bock insisted on playing it safe or at least as safe as such a risky operation could be played. Reinhardt formally accepted the order, but in reality he ignored it and continued to press on. These things were becoming increasingly common. German commanders had frequently been encouraged to achieve a goal and not follow explicit orders, and this had served them well in France, but it also set a dangerous precedent, in France particularly, where German generals ignored explicit orders that would have otherwise gotten them court-martialed or fired or, or worse, but because they were right in that instance, it seemed to suggest that they could do pretty much whatever they want. And here's what you get. Hopner's Panzer Group IV was also pushing in the northern sector, but was seeing less success. Its area of operation was south of Panzer Group III, and the combat here tended to be more attritional than on the extreme flanks. By the 26th, the town of Istra was captured. Istra was about 35 kilometers from the outermost Moscow suburbs and 50 kilometers from Red Square, central Moscow. A few days further advance brought German soldiers within shelling distance of those outermost Moscow suburbs, and many German soldiers wrote about seeing the city itself on a clear morning. Though it's actually debatable because the... Soviets constructed uh, counterfeit decoy buildings that looked like some of the Moscow landmarks in order to trick German bombers. So whether or not they actually saw the Kremlin or whatever, insert famous Moscow landmark here, is debatable. But they, they were tantalizingly close. Reading those letters that German soldiers wrote, I think it was fair to say that many of them were more eager to get to Moscow than most actual Muscovites have ever been. Back in the south, Guderian's forces had split into two main columns. The 24th Panzer Corps was pushing north towards Moscow and increasingly enveloping Soviet forces in and around Tula. The 47th Panzer Corps was advancing northeast towards the city of Ryazan. Guderian committed the better part of his remaining army into a battle group, which was supposed to reach the rail line between Ryazan and Kolmonia, 
This battle group effectively punched through Soviet forces and made good progress in the 25th and 26th, but their advance largely existed only on paper, being held by practically nothing. And as the battle group approached the city of Kashira on the 27th, it was hit by a powerful Soviet counterattack which threw it back, reeling. German commanders were gradually, painfully realizing that this whole effort was going nowhere. On the 27th of November, Quartermaster General Eduard Wagner told Goebbels that the army was at the end of its strength. As the chief logistics officer in the German Reich, he was not speaking metaphorically. On the 29th, Bach called Halder to voice his concerns about the progress of the offensive. Bach argued that if Soviet resistance north of Moscow lasted more than a few additional days, the entire offensive would have to be halted. Something was also becoming clear to German officers that this offensive was not like the others. More and more, it resembled brutal attritional warfare, reminiscent of the First World War, than rapid blitzkrieg. The massive hulls of prisoners that had come so freely in earlier months were now in short supply, and that was not because the Soviets had run out of troops. The latter half of November saw Army Group Center take 45,000 prisoners of war. May I remind you that just about a month earlier, they had taken perhaps not far from a million prisoners of war in the Vyazma and Bryansk pockets. Nor, as many Germans preferred to believe, was the Red Army out of manpower. In fact, Soviet reserves were rapidly growing. In October, only four divisions had been held in reserve. By November, there were at least 22 divisions in reserve, and by the end of November, the Red Army had completely recovered on a numerical basis from the disasters at Vyazma and Bryansk. On the other side, Army Group Center had not received a single division as reinforcements. In fact, by the end of November, the Austria had taken over 750,000 casualties, excluding six soldiers. That's about a quarter of their starting force. And keep in mind that sick here does not mean having the flu or a runny nose. Sick means seriously ill. Speaking of health issues, the cold had also become a health issue. By the end of November, over 133,000 cases of frostbite were reported in the German army, about a third of which would put the soldier out of action for at least six months, and some of which would permanently disable the soldier. The war in the East had completely exhausted the replacement army, which was responsible for replacing casualties, and the Austria was at least 340,000 men short. This was a the situation was far worse for frontline units who were taking the heaviest casualties. Transportation problems also worsened the situation, and even so, even if the soldier managed to get to his unit, a freshly trained replacement could not make up for a battle-tested veteran. Between this, as well as equipment shortages, the average German infantry division in mid to late November was at about half strength, with some being as low as a third of their optimal strength. As we've just discussed, Germany had pretty much exhausted its pool of military-age manpower, and officers were now racking their brains for solutions. One of the more effective ones they hit on was a sort of combing-out process for the occupied territories. First, the occupation forces in France, among other places, were stripped bare to provide for the Austria, but this was rather paltry for Germany's needs. So the Wehrmacht conducted a close inspection of all the troops stationed in non-combat or occupation roles. Those who were found fit for frontline service, who were stationed in the rear were transferred to the front, and those frontline troops who were too old or too wounded were transferred to rear duties. This, although this was not a one-to-one trade, the goal was to increase the number of troops on the eastern front. So not all wounded or relatively old troops on the eastern front were transferred. They weren't that lucky. 
This whole procedure, by the end of 1941, eventually netted about 250,000 men for the Eastern Front, which was a significant and necessary bonus. Another idea that was thrown out was the recruitment of anti-Soviet elements within the USSR to fight for Germany, and there was no such lack of people. There were political anti-communists, which there were many, and there were also certain ethnic minorities who widely despised the Soviet Empire for the atrocities it had committed against them. Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and Ukraine come to mind. More than just out of spite for the Soviets, Germany could induce these peoples to fight for them by hinting that they would be rewarded with their own state in the post-war order if they sufficiently contributed to the German war effort. For the record, the Nazis had no intention of allowing this at all. Richenau, who commanded the 6th Army, brought up the idea with Hitler, who roundly dismissed it. At this point in the war, the optics and ideological blow of having to rely on non-Germanic peoples was too great to bear, and for many in high command, this was not necessary, because they were not at all aware of the dire nature of the situation on the ground. This decision not to readily employ uh, Slavic or other non-German peoples into the German military is often cited as a major mistake, but I think this view needs to be tempered. First of all, even if we assume that recruitment of anti-Soviet minorities was approved and found enough within takers, which the latter certainly, as we'll see, would have been true, how would Germany have possibly supplied them? We spend about a third of this episode and every episode discussing how Germany can't even supply their own troops. In a real, in any sort of world approaching realism, approaching what real life, the best that could have been expected of these troops was to serve a sort of a was deserved occupation forces or a local militia, which the Germans often didn't trust them to do because they were considered too close to the local populace, because they were the local populace. The idea was to have foreign troops garrison the occupation because they were least likely to feel sympathy for them. So there wasn't really a good way to deploy them, at least not according to Nazis. Anyway, this was a long tangent, so let's get back to the field. Despite everything the Red Army was enduring, it was planning a major counterattack. Zhukov was perhaps the main, although not certainly the exclusive, architect of this plan. It called for attacks north and south of Moscow, as well as an attack in the center to stop the redeployment of German forces. In the last week of November, five newly raised Soviet armies began moving towards the front lines. Three of these, the 24th, 26th, and 60th, would take up positions near Moscow, while a fourth army was sent to hold near Kashira. It was decided to allow the Germans to exhaust themselves, then begin a counteroffensive. To some extent, this was an attempt to save face, you know, the idea, oh, we're allowing the Germans to attack, when the reality was they would have had quite a difficult time stopping them. But there was a genuine decision and a genuine uh, intelligence not to, not to attack too soon. In this regard, Soviet plans reflect a steely confidence and an acute sense of their enemy's strength traits which the Germans had either recently lost or never had, respectively. In the north, von Lieb's offensive had completely bogged down, and Soviet troops now shifted over to the attack. The need to attack was emphasized by the opening of the final German offensive on Moscow. As such, the Soviet offensive against Army Group North had two main goals. First, and probably foremost, to destroy German forces in the Tikhvin area and restore links to Leningrad but also to occupy as many German troops as possible to prevent their transfer to Army Group Center. 
The Soviet offensive targeted those German forces between Lake Ladoga and Lake Ilmen, which numbered around 120,000, with 100 tanks and 1,000 artillery pieces. Soviet troops in the area numbered around 190,000, with significantly more artillery but fewer tanks than the Germans. The plan was to slip through gaps in the German lines and smash in their defenses to encircle and destroy German forces over the Volkov River, then establish bridgeheads over the Volkov. The first portion of this attack, carried out by the 52nd Army, actually began back on November 12th, but initially proved unsuccessful due to poor reconnaissance and an inability to concentrate forces. The attack resumed on the 18th and was able to bypass German positions and force a German withdrawal. On the 19th of November, the 54th and 4th Armies began their assaults. Ferocious assaults inflicted severe casualties on both sides, but Soviet forces advanced extremely slowly. In the south, von Kleist had intended to conduct a deeper encirclement of Rostov, but the weather and his severe losses made this impossible. A direct assault on the city of Rostov began on the 17th. Fierce urban combat and freezing temperatures exacted an unbearable toll on both sides, with the 1st Panzer Army losing tanks and men at a prodigious rate. On the 21st, exhausted German troops finally cleared the city, but they had been too slow. Their lackluster advance had given the Red Army time to prepare a counteroffense, which actually began on the 17th of November. The counteroffensive peaked on the 27th, when the Soviet 37th Army slammed into the 1st Panzer Army from the north. Von Kleist, who commanded the 1st Panzer Army, quickly realized that his position was untenable and that his forces risked encirclement and destruction. Kleist requested permission to withdraw behind the Meuse River, 70 kilometers west, and Runstedt granted it on the 28th. But Hitler countermanded the order on the 29th. By that time, it was too late, and the city had been retaken by the Red Army, and German forces were already in the process of withdrawing. Even though it was now a moot point, Runstedt affirmed his decision, which enraged Hitler. In the Crimea, Manstein, who commanded German forces in the area, attempted to advance east and south of strong Soviet defenses. With strenuous efforts, he was able to push the defenders back, but Soviet counterattacks and naval shelling forced Manstein to halt the attack, having lost 2,000 men for his efforts. Believe it or not, the Luftwaffe was in just as bad shape as the army. For one of the first times in months, the Soviets had achieved significant numerical superiority across a broad front. All across Army Group Center, there were between 600 and 700 planes available for the Germans. On the Soviet side, they could call at least 1,200 machines. The Soviets also had one distinct advantage over the Germans when it came to the war in the air. The Soviets could deal with the cold. By late November, it had become so cold that the various fluids and airplane engines would freeze solid. The Soviets were using established air bases in and around Moscow, which were equipped with amenities like closed hangars and heating equipment that minimized these problems. For their part, the Germans were using captured air bases, often damaged and or without the necessary equipment. As a result, many German aircraft couldn't even get off the ground, and a fair few were severely damaged or destroyed by these uh, kind of weather-induced uh, damages. Even if they could theoretically lift off, German pilots tended to have very little, read, no, experience flying blizzards and dense fog. And true, Soviet pilots were not much better at this, but Soviet officers and pilots were far more willing to risk it than the Germans. As such, some days with particularly bad conditions saw next to no German sorties, which gave the Red Air Force complete air supremacy. The 6th Panzer Division report air attacks every 15 minutes. 
they should have been able to fight back with anti-aircraft guns, especially the much vaunted 88mm. But most divisions had shifted so many of their 88mm to serve as anti-tank guns that they no longer had enough as, you know, anti-aircraft guns. Worse yet, many German divisions found out the hard way that their smaller 37mm anti-aircraft guns were ineffective against the Sturmovik ground attack aircraft. It wasn't called the flying tank for nothing. The Eastern Front had also been deprived of aircraft by transfers. Kesselring's Luftflotte 2 was assigned to the Mediterranean, which must have come to a great relief to everyone who got to leave for a warmer and less deadly climate. Nor was the problem just on the front lines. German aircraft production was not sufficient for everything the Luftwaffe needed, and pressure came from every direction to ratchet up production. Eventually, it became too much for some. On November 17th, Ernst Udit, Director General of Equipment for the Luftwaffe, the man most in charge of procuring and manufacturing airplanes, committed suicide, and the losses just kept coming. Werner Mulders, the Luftwaffe top ace turned inspector of fighters, was flying back to Berlin to attend Udit's funeral, but his plane crashed en route, killing Mulders and two others. Many other aces, after hundreds of sorties and dozens of kills, found themselves shot down. In international news, these few weeks are busy ones. British and Commonwealth troops initiated Operation Crusader on November 18th, intending to destroy German forces in North Africa and relieve the garrison at Tobruk. Allied attacks are sloppy, resulting in heavy losses, but managed to force Rommel's troops back and temporarily relieve Tobruk. On the 22nd, Churchill, under Soviet pressure, issues an ultimatum to Finland to cease hostilities or Britain will declare war on them. On the 24th of November, America agrees to grant Lend-Lease aid to free French forces. Most importantly, on November 26, U.S. Secretary of State Cordell Hall issues an ultimatum to Emperor Hirohito. Called the Hull Note, it laid out the last proposal for a negotiated solution to the ongoing tension between Japan and the United States. Vitally, the Hull Note insisted on the removal of Japanese troops from China and French Indochina, something the Japanese were utterly unwilling to do. So Hirohito authorizes a fleet of 33 warships, including aircraft carriers, to begin sailing from Japan towards Hawaii. These ships kept in contact with commanders back in Tokyo and could be called back if the situation changed. I'll give you a hint, though. The situation did not change. Not for the better, anyway. However, at this moment, the fleet did not have permission or orders to attack, but it was moving into a position for attack. Contrary to popular belief, the idea that Japan would attack America was not at all a surprise to the American people. A survey of the American public taken just before Pearl Harbor found that 52% of Americans believed that Japan and the United States would soon be at war, and only a small percentage, well, about a quarter, believed affirmatively that the two would not go to war. The more interesting question, more interesting part in my mind, is why did Germany four days after the attack on Pearl Harbor, declare war on the United States, even though the United States had not declared war on Germany. This question has long plagued internet historians of all ilks, but I can't fully answer it. I can think, I think I can shed some light on it. First, we have to remember that American ships delivering Lend-Lease to the British have already come under fire by German U-boats, and American policy has become much more aggressive in response. Just based on that alone, many in Germany considered or were beginning to consider war with the U.S. as inevitable. 
And if you follow this line of thinking, declaring war on the U.S. instead of letting the U.S. declare war on you is just good PR. If it's going to happen anyway, you might as well look like you're in control. But in truth, America had loomed large in German grand strategy well before this. Fundamentally, Nazi ambitions meant toppling the balance of power, in particular destroying the power of Western capitalist democracies in favor of a hostile German hegemony. America was, of course, quite friendly with these Western capitalist democracies. Western European capitalist democracies had similar interests and had no interest in seeing uh, Germany rise in their place. So therefore, German strategists assumed that if given enough time, the U.S. would intervene on behalf of these Western powers. And in fact, one could argue that the decision to invade the Soviet Union was heavily influenced by the desire to avoid American intervention. Following the failure of the Battle of Britain, Germany had no immediate prospect of knocking Britain out of the war and shoring up that side so that they could focus entirely on the Soviet Union. And they knew that if and when America came into the war, Britain would be the staging ground for uh, an American invasion of Europe or just uh, an extensive air war that would be based in the UK. Um... And they knew that while Britain could hold out, Britain didn't really have a prospect of defeating Nazi Germany alone. And the reason Britain was continuing to hold out was because they hoped that either the USSR or the US would enter the war. That would be enough power, theoretically, to defeat Nazi Germany. So the German goal was to convince Britain that that was not possible and that they should surrender. Now, obviously, they could not invade America, but they could invade the Soviet Union. And their hope was... If they knocked out the Soviet Union quickly enough, the British would give up the ghost and make peace or, you know, come to an agreement with the Germans. And then if the British were out of the war, the Americans, it wouldn't be viable for them to come in alone and uh, go to the war with Nazi Germany alone. So then they would make peace with the Germans or at least resign themselves to the new world order and the Germans would have their European hegemony. And if you follow that thread... Again, declaring war on America is just seizing the narrative. You think it's already going to happen. One last reason was because Germany had offered a guarantee to Japan that it would join any war Japan started with America. Ribbentrop, the Nazi foreign minister, had made this promise to the uh, Japanese ambassador to Germany on November 28th. With this, Germany hoped to motivate Japan to take the final leap. In my estimation, Japan probably would have done it nonetheless, but... The Germans had made the promise anyway. They made their bed, now they would lie in it. Turning to an analysis of these two weeks, German forces are done. They're exhausted. What plans the Luftwaffe has on the Eastern Front are more or less grounded. Panzer divisions have a handful of tanks still working. Soldiers are freezing to death, all with no end in sight. The picture I've painted resembles nothing so much as Napoleon's Grand Army, with his ignominious failure against Russia in the early 1800s. Of the three sectors... German forces have gone over on the defensive on two of them. The loss of Rostov marked the largest city that the Red Army has recaptured so far, and only in the center do German forces even have enough strength to maintain the, the delusion that they can complete their objectives, a delusion which fewer and fewer people believe by the day. This will not be a full retrospective analysis of the failure of Barbarossa. That'll be for the next episode. The rest of this episode will be me talking about my ideas for bonus episodes and for the next podcast. If you don't want to listen to that, you can tune out now, and I'll see you guys next week.
For everyone else, I've roughly figured out the bonus episodes I'm going to do after we finish the main series, as well as what the next podcast topic is going to be. For the bonus episodes, I'm currently planning to do an episode on Finland during Barbarossa, a front I've mostly skipped over, an episode on the conduct and impact of the Soviet partisan movement during Barbarossa, an episode about some of the the expeditionary forces Germany's allies sent to the Eastern Front during Barbarossa, I will also make several episodes on the Holocaust and other war crimes during Operation Barbarossa. That's all I've got for right now, but if you've got any other ideas, reach out and let me know. As for the next podcast, I'm going to be covering the Second Sino-Japanese War. That is, China's War with Japan, which began in 1937 and lasted until Japan's surrender at the end of the Second World War. However, I'm unsure exactly about the details. I could cover the conflict from beginning to end, or from its beginning to Pearl Harbor, when the U.S. entered the war against Japan. Either way, I do know that the episodes for that podcast will cover a much longer period, including more political history. This is partly because whether I cover the first half of the war or the whole thing, it'll be way too long for me to just go two weeks or even a month at a time. Also because detailed English language sources about this war are just far and few between, and my Mandarin is pretty non-existent. If you've got ideas for how I should structure that podcast, or any general questions or suggestions, please email me at apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. That's apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. Otherwise, my name's Harry, and I'll see you next week when we'll finally finish Operation Barbarossa.